Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. First off, what you need to know about us is that thinking differently and innovatively about solving big social issues is what makes us tick. We love offering new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. So we hope you'll be inspired to make a difference wherever you are. We're changing the way, we're changing the world. That is, that space shapes social relations as much as social relations shape space, damn it. <laughs> I can redo it. <laughs> Today, I'm so excited to be chatting to Garth Hankey, the Process Improvement Coordinator at Critterscare Hospital. I'm sorry, is that correct? We should be on the edge of our seats as we witness how they are going to influence the reimagining of our society. Oh. <laughs> sorry, the S's got me. I'll do that again. <laughs> Jason. Uh, f- from this moment onwards, uh, please please remain incredibly quiet and remember that I have enough coffee. Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast with us, your hosts, Kinsey Khatebe, Fergus Turner, and Simnigiwe Klanga. Hearing some of those bloopers is reminding me how far we've come and that we actually started recording this podcast at home at the height of the pandemic. It's hard to believe that we've already reached the end of the first season of the Just for a Change podcast. And so we thought it would be a good opportunity to reflect back on some of our season one highlights and also share the exciting news that we'll be back with season two starting in July 2021. We've done 12 episodes so far and covered some really interesting topics. This has been a learning process for our team and we'd like to say a special thank you to our listeners who have come along for the ride so far. A real highlight of being a host on this podcast for me has been getting to know a little more deeply what my colleagues and team members are all about, what drives them, what keeps them up at night, and what keeps their minds ticking on some of the most complex issues of our time. I'd love to hear what some of your personal highlights have been in hosting this podcast. Kense and Simnikiwe. <laughs> it's interesting that you speak about our colleagues and our team members because I think a personal highlight for me in season one was actually having some of the Bertha staff team members be part of some of our podcast episodes. At the Bertha Center, we have, you know, five focus areas. We're looking at health, we're looking at education, youth and development, innovative finance. And there's actually a lot going on. And we don't often get an opportunity to actually just sit together and delve a little bit deeply into the work that we do. So for me, it was really amazing to have our colleagues in the room with us, even if sometimes it wasn't in the same space, and really talking about the amazing work that they're doing and some of the transformational projects that they're involved in. Wow. For me, um, there's been a lot when this podcast started from... The time when uh, there was an idea to start a podcast and to actually being part of it and being part of it with the amazing humans that have um, formed this family of engagements, you can say, as well as you, Fergus, in getting to engage with um, the people that we invited to to talk to us about some of the challenges within the system and also getting to know myself as well um, while having these conversations with our guests and um, the work that we do and how all of this ties in together. So it's been an amazing journey for me. Um, yeah, that's a big highlight for me for this year and last year when we started this work. So something that we've spoken about often, it's in the intro to the podcast and is at the heart of what the Bertha Center does and that is looking at development through a social justice and systems lens. We hope that throughout season one, you've got a better idea of what this means in practice. 
This is somewhat of a golden thread in the podcast and for this season's wrap-up episode. We decided to look at our episodes so far and see how they've helped us make sense of systems justice. So a while back, I came across a great article describing the capabilities needed for systems change by Anna Burney from the School of Systems Change at Forum for the Future. You can see the link in the article in our show notes. The article does a great job of framing the key elements that are required for engaging in systems change. It also does a fantastic job of exploring how complexity unfolds in our systems. You know, Ken say I really enjoyed thinking about this as well. And it made me think of so many of the incredible conversations we've had, both in the future stories and the positive outlook segments throughout the 12 episodes. And so we'd like to share some of our favorites with you. Sure, So the five capabilities outlined in the article mentioned by Kense are as follows. First off, systemic diagnosis. This means figuring out or diagnosing the complexities of creating sustainable, lasting change. Second is strategy design, which is the designing of systems change interventions. Thirdly, innovating for impact. These solutions need to be scalable and create a systemic impact. This is easier said than done for sure. Fourthly, we need to see a high level of collaboration and engagement. Practically, this looks like seeking out, initiating, building, and facilitating partnerships and coalitions across sectors for change. And lastly, the fifth dimension of these capabilities is about leadership and learning, being able to lead well into a complex and uncertain future. Thanks for outlining that for us, Fergus. As you're speaking about systemic diagnosis, I'm reminded of episode eight where we spoke about the challenges facing the education sector and most especially learners going into 2021. Our education innovation portfolio lead, Louise Albertain, highlighted some of the particular challenges that the education system has faced during COVID-19. Great. Thanks, Kentia. I think alarming is, is the right word. I think if I had to sum up my thoughts about 2020, it would be that it's been a perfect storm because I think each player within the education story is going through something very difficult at the same time. So you had parents suddenly needing to move to homeschooling. And as somebody recently said, homeschooling is a bit of a misnomer because that implies that it was an intentional choice. You were able to plan for it. This was actually something that was thrust upon parents with very little warning and very little equipping. So I think parents are grappling with that at the same time as learners having everything stripped away in the school day beyond the quite clinical academic. So you no longer had your informal conversations with your teachers, your peers, you no longer had extramurals, any of the annual events that mark the passing of time. And then at the same time, you had teachers who suddenly had to rapidly move online and had to contend with not just uncertainty, but I think sustained uncertainty, Kense, which I think has been particularly difficult. You know what I think I love about what Louise highlights there is just how immense and massive the change was across the education sector. It wasn't just like a policy change that would affect how teachers delivered learning or something like that. But the pandemic fundamentally transformed already existing challenges that were, you know, in the education sector, but really also highlighted sort of like the inequalities. And I think that's what really came out of that episode. I don't know. What do you guys think about that reflection? Yeah, I agree with you there, Kense, because some of these challenges have been there. I think um, the pandemic just amplified um, these challenges and it kind of like brought 
everything to the spotlight and it made people realize like what next and at the same time parents and teachers were all on the same platform in a way because this was not only a challenge for teachers but a challenge for parents and a challenge for the children as well because this affected everybody and what i really hope we might be able to do as a society is to use this opportunity to look even deeper into the question of what kind of education what what kind of learning what kind of teaching is relevant for this century recognizing that the system that we're all talking about that has been disrupted is in and of itself a bit of a dinosaur it was developed for a very particular era and time um and we live with it and now we try uh, drastically to make sure that our kids uh, continue to receive this education is this the education of the new world is this is is this what our future demands from us so i i hope that uh, along with what you're saying to me kiwi that we can go even deeper and ask the questions um that perhaps we're still not asking precisely because we're still in that alarmed pandemic crisis mode mm-hmm. i like what you said about the dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely an aspect of this in episode 11 as well the one where we heard about the challenges and opportunities facing the youth development sector and becoming a more united force in helping young people together if change is to happen especially in the unemployment rates we need to know what the challenges are and understand the complexities on a systemic level so there's there's been a fairly significant amount of research done um in particular by by UJ and and UCT in looking at that journey of a young person and really there are multiple components to facilitate that that process of transition so looking at how a young person becomes a productive member of society and and enters into the economy and i think that within the south african context what we have is um a pathway that that is a difficult one that's characterized by significant barriers or or gaps in service and a lot of that pathway that we now have for young people has been predefined through the legacy of of our own social structures specifically things like um segregation and apartheid that have limited the opportunities and and institutionalized the barriers for young people as they move out of the school environment into a working environment so there is a lot of complexity that has defined the landscape that we now we're now faced with and certainly has contributed significantly to the enormous level of unemployment that we're that we're challenged with currently one of the hallmarks of systemic diagnosis is to become aware of our own assumptions and biases what does it mean necessarily to become a productive member of society what does it mean to walk into a workplace that obviously isn't supporting a sustainable future for all for the environment and for society at large these kind of deeper questions are often missed when we describe phenomena and events on the surface level without checking our own biases and assumptions around what kind of change we would like to support another one that comes to mind in terms of understanding systemic diagnosis really understanding what the issues are and how they are related is episode 9 about the social justice issues apparent in the rollout of the covid-19 vaccine 
around the world and the way that the pandemic has raised our collective awareness of the importance of access to good healthcare. Well, you know, if you think back to December, we actually didn't have any vaccine. You know, uh, everything was COVAX. Uh, and suddenly, from uh, one presidential announcement to one ministerial press conference, things changed. And the situation has changed so rapidly, you know, week to week, day to day, hour to hour. That it's hard to keep up. So I think there's not a question that the private sector has to be involved in this. I mean, clearly, that's the only way um, this is going to be successful, in least part because we have limited sources to fund this rollout. So we have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine arriving, but it's not coming in a big bolus. So we're still facing the hard choices of who gets it first and how do we organise that? I think as painful as COVID-19 has been, in many ways, it's brought health back as a as a real issue for people it's not health that happens to someone else or health that happens in a hospital it's health that happens to you you're seeing it happen to your neighbor you're seeing it happen to your family member we've all had to stay at home i think it's the first time in many of our lives where we've all been so profoundly aware of what it is to be healthy i think what's really interesting about that conversation and that back and forth between katusha and prof leslie london is just how they're highlighting how the pandemic wasn't just an event. It actually almost removed the curtains or made us see how healthcare is also influenced by other structural factors. What's happening globally, what's happening in the economy, what's happening locally with the NHI, which is something we actually discussed in that episode. And I think for me, what I sit with when I hear them reflecting this is then how do we create that opportunity to take advantage of crises to actually turn them into an opportunity to create change? Likely. There's a long way more to go. It, what was fascinating for me is to hear the commentary from both Prof and from Katusha um, and then think about, um, I mean, that was some months ago. Uh, that was before um, those vaccines uh, reached our shores. And uh, so now we're seeing exactly that taking place. And um, I guess uh, what I find fascinating is <laughs> it's almost like I'm listening to that clip is like listening to two people describe watching a car crash in slow motion, uh, sort of, you know, happening, taking place. And there's, there's something about that that fills me with sort of humility and recognizing that, uh, you know, despite our best attempts to diagnose and, and uh, forecast on scenarios and difficulties that are coming, the depth and complexity of the way all of these things link means that it is it is sometimes outside of our control uh, and and um, that leads to kind of humbling to the circumstance and seeing what we can do to learn and reflect on this as much as possible you know as we sit here and having this conversation i'm thinking it's one thing being able to diagnose the challenges but it's another thing to design strategies that address these challenges in a sustainable way I really enjoyed episode 10 about innovative finance. It was such a good reminder that all systems are connected and need to change if we are to see any long-lasting impact. We also heard how local entrepreneurs have pivoted during this time and created new ways of generating revenue. You mentioned something interesting about working with entrepreneurs in Kailicha. Uh, I'm sure this must have been impacted when COVID struck. So could you tell us, could you share with us what went through your mind when COVID happened last year? 
I mean, COVID is such a wild experience. I don't think anyone could have uh, predicted such a crazy event. I think when it first struck, we thought this was going to be maybe a month or two month long process. So my immediate reaction was, I need to shift stock. I need to get rid of all stock that I'm sitting on um, so I can last this process. So I knew a lot of my coffee shops were going to close and about 75 of them did immediately as as, uh, lockdown was announced. And the three days prior to lockdown, I put together a little WhatsApp menu, which had all these small businesses that I was working with and a few extras. And I tried to just shift as much product as I could. And in those three days prior to lockdown, I did 23 sales um, in those three days. And these were my first sales direct to consumer. But before I'd been doing business to business sales where I would supply coffee shops. Now I was selling directly to consumers. And this got me thinking, hmm. I can make 23 sales in three days. Why don't I upscale my products massively, work with a lot more entrepreneurs, put my margins up and sell directly to the consumer. And this is when the seed fund really kicked in. And and I started kind of exploring this online store kind of model. In a way, any crisis has in it the stresses that push our imaginations and our preconceptions of what's possible. In this case, how I run my business, how I interface with my clients, with my consumers. Um, It stretches what is possible. So so what's possible to be imagined. And um, sort of, I'm sure we all felt very similar uh, when when the lockdowns first began. um, Is this going to be three weeks? Is this going to be two months? And um, just imagining the, the effect that this has had on so many businesses and fundamentally being challenged to think about how they do business, how they serve their clients, their users completely differently in this time is staggering. This is just one example of a pivot at a time of uh, increased shock and complexity. And it just showcases the potential for systemic change and systemic um, adaptation at a time of um, great change. I think for me, what I really enjoyed about this this episode, Simni, um, is also the conversation that we had, I think it was, and looking at innovative finance on the rest of the continent. And at the time, I don't think we really touched on the pandemic and, and the impact that it was having. We were looking at how we fund entrepreneurs on the continent. But I absolutely agree with this clip that we just played around taking an opportunity, maybe something that, you know, maybe the government doesn't work really well in your country. There's a lot of systemic inefficiencies and actually utilizing those to find new customers, to find new organizations that you can collaborate and partner with. And I think for me, that was also another big takeaway from the pandemic is exactly that, the pivoting, but also taking the risk and and maybe, yeah, seeing the crisis, but also seeing the opportunity as well. A big highlight for us last year was the virtual Bold Peace Conference. It highlighted some of the really important work being done in the digital space to build peace. Meeting together is so key to this process, whether in person or online. And I think that uh, so much of reimagining happens when we start realizing that things that we've been imagining might resonate or harmonize with things that other people are imagining. Um, and I think that that's actually a critical piece in movement building. Um, and I've I've really discovered that in my own work with launching unconventional, um, finding that the work that or finding that that some of the areas of of challenge or pain that I was seeing or experiencing resonated with other young women in our field. 
um, it, it inspired me to, to lean into those questions a little bit more, um, to lean into what could we do to reimagine a world where we're leading from a place of abundance or we're uh, leading in a way that is centering uh, friendship or it's centering the well-being of people who work for peace and justice. Um, and so being part of the Build Peace Conference, I think, for, came at a, at a beautiful time in my own journey in that reimagination process. So I was able to share some ideas with other people at the conference and, and be inspired um, to continue on that journey, um, but also was inspired by the, the gathering itself and by seeing that collective uh, reimagination that was happening in a gathering with a lot of young people who had fresh ideas about what it looks like to build peace and justice in our world. Um, and seeing how so much of the culture shifting or movement building does happen. And it starts from a place of being gathered together in one space. You know what I really loved about Build Peace Vegas is the fact that it came at such a critical time, even just for myself personally, where I thought, can I do another Zoom conference? Can I attend another webinar? But actually bringing people together virtually in that space was so amazing. And I remember the opening speaker who actually touched on sort of like peace and security and the rise of terrorism in Nigeria. And I think seeing that juxtaposed at the time and thinking about the pandemic, it was to think about how our attention got almost like, it's almost like a swivel. We were only focused on the pandemic, but actually coming back to say, but wait a minute, there's still all these other things happening in the world. And what does that mean for us? So yeah, I think for me, that, that was quite, that was quite pivotal. I think one of the interesting things about being involved in, in the work that we're in is that oftentimes I hear the word innovation a lot in research, in articles. So Oftentimes, I think about it as a buzzword, but what does it actually mean? What does it look like on the ground? And how do we make sure that the word innovation doesn't lose like its oomph and potentially the kind of social impact that we're trying to have in the world when we use that? So I think for me, when I think about innovation, I think about impact that needs to be scalable and effective on a systemic level. This brings to mind the fantastic conversation we had in episode six with the director of the Bertha Center, Solange Rosa, about the social economy, the recognition of which is essential to creating scalable systemic impact. And I think in times of crisis, um, what I wanted to also latch on to that Lorenzo said is that uh, I, I did work on the green paper for the social economy for the National Department of Economic Development. And the social economy as a concept um, you know, globally and also pushed a lot by the International Labour Organization um, is, is that part of the economy that picks up all of the social uh, dynamics, that picks up the social um, issues and, and then helps to basically support uh, families, you know, the poor, um, unemployed people, et cetera. So, so it, 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 it really is a, a big part of the economy that steps in um, to support vulnerable populations. And so when there is a crisis, like a pandemic, that problem becomes worse. And so the social economy should grow in order to uh, support um, and rebalance what the general economy then requires as, you know, able-bodied working population with opportunities, people, kids going to school, etc. And one of the reasons it often doesn't grow is precisely because the systemic incentive structures of the economy, as we have organized it during so-called peacetimes, uh, 
doesn't quite accommodate for the needs. Um, and, 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 and this really speaks to the, the kind of our director there, Solange, really sort of digging into the, 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 the deeper underlying realities of what we see as events taking place during this crisis and recognizing that the underlying logics of how we organize our cities, our economies, um, ought to be a part of this discussion and not only a reactive, oh goodness, how can we solve for X? How can we solve for Y? Really looking a little more deeply as to what are the incentive structures here and why is it so difficult for um, the public sector or for the social economy to respond innovatively to an absolutely unprecedented situation. You know what's really interesting to me, Fergus, about what you're saying about those incentive structures? And I think a question that I've really, really been sitting with is that why did we need a crisis to wake us up to this reality of how our systems are structured yeah, to yeah. marginalize, to oppress? And, and I think for me, that really, I don't know, it, it sets me, I don't know, it, it gets me thinking about what other kinds of questions, what else are we not seeing when we're not yeah. in crisis, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Another gem on the topic of innovation was the incredible systems innovation happening at Krutuskia Hospital. Katusha de Villiers, our health systems innovation lead, had a great conversation with Garth Hankey about the work being done at GSH to create spaces for innovation and inclusion, a first of its kind in the public healthcare sector in South Africa. So when I was working um, on the hub and the innovation program in 2015, I was, um, I was sitting at the hospital about four days a week uh, for about a year. And um, then that project wrapped up and I went back to Bertha and I started doing other health systems innovation projects. Um, but, the, but the hub continued. Um, and that's when you became more involved with the running of the hub. Is that right? Yes, it was in parallel with another initiative. So one of our biggest hospital-wide innovations is called uh, the Grote Performance System. It's actually developing thinking for, thinking people to institutionalize a culture of continuous improvement in almost uh, giving the people a platform to explore new ideas all the time. So I was involved in another initiative where we decreased the discharge exit times in one of the acute surgery wards. And that proved to us that we can make a difference without actually uh, obtaining a lot of resources or throwing money at everything. So the innovations is still very much part of Groot this year, but the improvement component is complementing it at the moment. So we're looking at the behavior of the managers to support the environment to explore new ideas. From innovation to collaboration. Um, collaboration and engagement are fundamental if we are to see the kind of systems change we work towards coming to fruition. A story that comes to mind on this topic is from episode one and the development of the CANS or community action networks in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. How exciting to see communities rally and self-organize. These collaborations have been creating change in communities since their inception. Alice Gippers, a Bertha team member, shared some great insights how the Woodstock can organize themselves and the necessity of moving at the speed of trust. This power of what it means to be aware of our power, but also want to engage with it. And so the principles 
we're just pointing out how are the different ways that the community action networks and specifically us in Woodstock, we're trying to think about our organizing differently. And so one of the key ones was focusing on critical critical connections more than critical mass. So it wasn't about how many people we had in the network. It was about the relationships between those people and the extent to which we trusted each other and the extent to which we respected each other and this, the extent to which we acknowledged the privilege and the power that was playing out in the relationships between us. Another example close to my heart is from episode two, where we heard about how youth are reimagining a post-pandemic society. Some young people from Fairground here in Cape Town shared how they are mobilizing young people in their community. Um, mobilizing young people is not an easy thing. What I've seen that is that um, some of them have a low self-esteem. So what we, norm- we normally do, we just reach out to them so that they could come closer and see what our vision is. I think what's really amazing about both those clips from Ella and the one that we just heard now about what was happening in Freyron during the pandemic. And I think for me, it's such a, it seems like, oh no, this isn't the way to go. But I think what came out, and when we're thinking about innovation, we often think big. But what came out is that actually sometimes small is good. That sometimes small changes where you're at, whether that's in a small neighborhood in Cape Town, whether it's thinking about your own neighborhood in Woodstock, that what you're creating in connecting with people, maybe just your next door neighbor, somebody at your local school, actually has the potential to create impact. Mm, mm, I agree strongly, Kenze, uh, because with what Ella said about uh, not critical mass, but critical connections stands out for me so much because that's what's important and trust among our community members. And again, with what the young person mentioned here from Freyhond about uh, self-starting and organizing and mobilizing people um, speaks to what we do in Bertha Center when we're creating collaborations, when we're creating a space for people to advocate towards um, certain things that we want to shift in our community. So this is so important and it's highlighting how sometimes we don't really need a lot of resources, but we need to start with what we have. And that starts with um, that community mobilizing and making do with what is there. And to round out this wrap-up, it's essential to mention the role that leadership and learning play in creating true systemic change. Leaders need to be learners and also able to lead in complex situations, more so now than ever before, as we head into an uncertain future. In episode three, we heard from a few leaders about their journeys to influence. What great examples of this exact thing. I really enjoyed what our guest, Tracy Naledi, an industry leader and expert in the health sector, had to say about the role that vulnerability plays in leadership. I'm interested about the idea of vulnerability, and I'm wondering if vulnerability is part of influence and being influential. What do you think? Absolutely. And and, and Brene Brown talks about this, you know, um, that you know, for you, you need to put, you need to raise your voice. I think the thing that um, we fear most is for people to look at us and think that we are stupid or that, you know, our ideas are dumb or whatever it is, you know. And so if you have that fear and you are not willing to make yourself vulnerable and put yourself out there for to raise your voice and say, hang on, I have this idea. This is what I think 
you will kind of then be in, you know, stay in silent and not say, and you need to, uh, to be vulnerable and to put yourself out there to say, I have an idea. Understanding fully well that other people may not like your idea or may they think that, you know, your idea is dumb or whatever and not giving up and kind of saying, okay, I've got a whole bag of ideas. What about this one? <laughs> Until you get it right and to, to understand that not all your ideas will land, will be welcomed, or the timing for them will be right. You might have an idea now um, that will will fall flat, but five years from now, you see somebody actually implementing your, your idea, maybe because the time is right. So I absolutely believe that vulnerability is important. For, if you want to have a voice, you have to be vulnerable. I think what's so amazing about what Tracy's speaking about there around that vulnerability is that it's something that often as a woman it comes to mind when you're leading in a particular context or situation where you're thinking, I don't want to be, you know, vulnerable. I want to appear as strong and competent and all of these synonyms that we use to describe leadership, which oftentimes sort of play into our patriarchal understandings of how we frame leadership. But I think what's really important about this episode for me, which was looking at women and leadership, is that during the pandemic, we actually saw women rise up. I'm thinking particularly about the community action networks. We saw, we did a survey and we found that about 70% of the women who were involved or the people who were involved were actually women. So I think for me, it showed how it, in any particular crisis or context or situation, it really shouldn't matter who you are. Exactly what you were saying, Fergus, being about the, the, the person, people. But it showed to me that actually oftentimes in times of crisis, women show up. And finally, the leaders of tomorrow. In episode 12, I had a great time chatting to both the scholars, Shannon Van Veek and Samson Kofi Adoti, about how they see systems change and the challenges and opportunities therein. Samson spoke powerfully about the role that humility plays in leadership. Um, one thing that always, you know, makes me um, worried is when people in the development sector go into communities and think the communities have no knowledge or clue about what they are doing, right? You come into my community to tell me that, well, the way you do things doesn't work and it's not the right way. And I'm going to teach you how to do it, you know? And often what they realize or these guys find out after years of pumping money into countless projects is that the solutions that they present are not viable. They don't last. They are not sustainable. And when they leave, these guys are back to, you know, whatever they were doing before. So in the light of patience and intentionality, um, one of the things that I can, you know, suggest or propose is having to acknowledge the role and importance of indigenous knowledge and indigenous knowledge systems. Um, when we want to um, plug you know, our computer to to charge it, right? We don't just go and look for the sun and just plug the, 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 the whole thing into the sun. No, we look for a socket. If there's no socket, we have to look for an extension. And then we connect that extension to a socket before we plug our charger. So if you come into my community, assuming the source then is the indigenous knowledge and indigenous knowledge systems, the next point of connection is if I can't find that if I come with a solution, which is to connect my solution to the existing systems 
and I can't find a place to plug it, where do you go? You follow the community entry process. Um, and often people neglect that. People go into communities and they're like, oh, you guys, I just noticed you don't have a market, you don't have a hospital, you don't have this. Okay, I'm going to build you this. I'm going to do that. Um, and then you realize that that is not a primary need of a community. And that has a lot to do with humility and at a deeper level, the danger of certainty, the dangerousness of men and women who are a little too certain about what they know and what they feel is necessary in a particular situation. Fergus, Simone, thank you so much. Um, and thank you for, I think, the inputs that you're bringing to this conversation and reflecting on the journey that we've been on in these last 12 episodes. I really appreciate having you here today. It's been great to have input from you, our listeners, via voice notes on each episode. We decided to share some of our favorite ones with you. But first, we thought we'd hear from Grant McPherson, one of the team members behind the scenes that makes the podcast happen each month. We have one question for him. What was it like getting voice note submissions for each podcast? Oh, the irony of submitting this via voice note since I was sick this week and couldn't actually be in person at the recording. It was certainly a logistical job that had its own challenges because most people don't like the sound of their own voice, including me. However, it did add a very real, very human aspect to our podcast in that we really enjoyed everyone's opinions and input. And I look forward to season two. Do you send those voice notes in? Thank you, Grant, for sharing. And now for our voice note montage. For me, uh, when I enter new spaces, definitely the workspaces and quite often the social space. It's about people who don't see color. I feel quite uncomfortable if I'm the only white person in the room and you can kind of feel that people are reacting or responding to you differently. And similarly, if it's a room with only white people and for some reason I just don't feel comfortable entering a space with only white people, which seems strange as a white person. And maybe it has to do with the rural context I grew up in. In 2021, I'm looking forward to collaborating with all the different organizations, departments and government and individuals that are committed to making sure that South Africa emerges from this crisis stronger than ever before. To be a woman of influence to me is being consistent in using every opportunity and platform to advocate for women, empowerment, and also pave the way for the next generation. My hopes for the future is to be, become a great leader and encourage the youth to come along to do uh, progress and such big difference. We're really excited to announce that there'll be another season of the Just for a Change podcast launching in July 2021. What can you expect to hear from us in season two? We will keep our focus on highlighting systems change and social justice. We hope to highlight more of the nuances, complexities, struggles, and victories in this work, as well as showcasing inspiring people and organizations who are doing the work. Ferguson Simney, what are you looking forward to in season two? Really? I'm looking forward to hearing more from the audience, whatever that means, and to feel the way that these stories and this approach to telling stories and sharing them um, is being heard and felt by you, the listener, as well as the many different themes and conversations that we will be having along the way with inspiring places, people, and purpose. Yeah, I must agree. I'm looking forward to being 
part of this team again in July, as well as hearing great conversations um, with um, with our guests and unpack a lot more and be brave in the process and also get to learn because this has been an amazing platform to get to hear so that we can build together and create connections together. Uh, great conversations. That is what I'm looking for in excitement. Thank you for tuning in to Just for a Change, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship, the podcast where we offer new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. If you're curious about solving social issues in your community or believe we can make a positive, tangible difference in the world, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. We'll be playing out this episode with some more bloopers from season one. Enjoy. And we're looking forward to seeing you next month for the launch of season two. A previous indicator of their responsiveness was with the call. Oh, Carol, sorry, that um, cursor interrupted me. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Sorry, I'm just gonna, uh, I just wanna quickly. Um... Am I on? I don't know about the power. That's the thing. <laughs> okay, great. Sometimes I speak, nothing comes out. <laughs> Living and working in Kailicha, Cape Town's biggest township. Especially, uh, tankers. <laughs>